Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Quiet Mark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, CMO at Quiet Mark. Quiet Mark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quietest products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. Last month, on 26th of January, I read a report in Fast Company with the headline, Quiet or I'm Quitting. Here's why your employees are getting so fed up with workplace noise. It said that as workers return to offices, they may be less tolerant of pre-pandemic decibel levels especially if they are introverts. And in the report, written by Jennifer Allserver, there's a quote from Jennifer Moss, a journalist and author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic, which says, We're all revving really high right now and we're sensitive. There's a mental fatigue that happens by hearing all these noises all day long. It can actually increase the likelihood of anxiety and depression over time. It goes on to say that all that noise can make us lose concentration, motivation and brain functioning. People lose an estimated 86 minutes of productivity each day because of noise distractions, according to a study by Steelcase. And it adds, it takes another 23 minutes to get back on task after an interruption, according to another University of California at Irvine study. It also warns that noise is also bad for your health. It is connected to heart problems, loss of sleep, high blood pressure, and high levels of stress. I was particularly interested in the part that addresses neurodiversity. It says that sensitivity to noise varies among people. Introverts, for instance, tend to tolerate much less noise than extroverts. According to Susan Cain's book, Quiet, the Power of Introverts in a World that Can't Stop Talking, she writes of one study in which extroverts chose 72 decibels for the just right level of sound, while introverts chose 55 decibels. Those introverts also performed much worse on tasks when exposed to extroverts' noise levels. Finally, and neatly segueing to our guests on today's show, the Fast Company piece says Solutions for a Noisy World, in which it says, To improve acoustics, companies are installing modular phone booths for quiet work and building huddle rooms with soundproofing that allows everyone in virtual meetings, both at home and in the office, to hear more clearly. Companies are also turning to soundscaping, one UK soundscaping company, Mood Sonic, does this by playing a wide range of nature sounds from the babble of a stream to island forests inside client offices and thereby silencing noisy conversations on a surge in activity. The company's software uses sensors to monitor areas of offices and automatically adjust sounds, says Evan Benway, managing director of Mood Sonic. So I'm delighted to have Evan as one of two guests on our show today to explore that subject in greater detail. He's joined by Ethan Bordeaux, Sound Concept Lead at the International Wellbuilding Institute, who was our guest on episode two of the Quiet Mark podcast two years ago. Evan and I both sit on the Well Sound Advisory, which is led by Ethan. And in this episode, we're going to learn more about Moodsonic, which was recently Quiet Mark certified, and the ways in which soundscapes can bring multiple well-being benefits to the built environment. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce to the Quiet Mark podcast, Ethan and Evan. How are you both today? Yeah, things are great here. I'm calling in from the East Village in uh, Lower Manhattan. This is where my partner lives. Uh, no shortage of 
disturbing sounds and noise coming from outside. So I apologize in advance if uh, any landscaping or sirens are. <laughs> it's our mission to reduce noise in the world, but there is still noise to reduce, Ethan. So don't, no need to apologize for that. Evan, how are you and where are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm calling from the other side of the U.S. today, so I'm in Washington State in Olympia. Yeah, and in contrast to Ethan, I've got the sounds of of birds outside my window. Oh, wow. That could balance things out a little bit. Well, we've already started talking about soundscapes, which isn't a bad area to begin because that's what this show is all about, as I talked about in my introduction. Starting with you, Ethan, you work for well, don't you? I do, yes. Where I wear a number of hats, but my my day to day job is as the sound concept lead at the International Well Building Institute, where we design programs and standards that focus on the intersection of health and well being in the built environment. Um, with my focus being acoustics and noise control. And Evan, you are the founder of Mood Sonic. Yes, that's right. Well, so I'm calling in from Washington today, as I as as I explained. But when I'm not here, I'm um, I'm in Europe, and I run a, a UK based company called Moodsonic, where we're all about soundscapes and creating positive and optimal soundscapes for uh, indoor spaces. I can't wait to find out more on this show. But before we go into Moodsonic, which was recently Quartmark certified, let's have a look at a paper. Ethan, I'm going to put you in your time machine and whiz you back. I don't know if you can remember these pre-pandemic days of 2017, but you did write a feature, an article that caught my eye. It's a great one. It's called The Top 5 Takeaways from the Acoustics Hashtag Wellography. And you began it. I'm going to refresh your memory here, Ethan. It said... Have you ever wondered how the diverse soundscapes that you experience in your day-to-day can impact your health and productivity? This month, we released our Acoustics Wellography, which provides you with a comprehensive overview of sound and the built environment, how we experience and are impacted by sound, and strategies that can be applied to mitigate the negative risks associated with noise and other distracting sounds. There's a couple of fantastic points in the top 10 that you start with there, Ethan, uh, reminding you that number one was about the human ear and how it has a specific range of sensitivity across sound pressure level and frequency. And the other point, the second point, before you start recommending uh, sound masking in point three, which we're going to come on to, the second point was a point that looked at distracting sound can affect our bodies in more ways than we may realize. Do you remember that report? And can I ask you to tell us a little bit more about it? Oh, do I ever? I mean, that was that must have been my second month as the sound concept lead at the International Well Building Institute. I think this was my first major assignment was to synthesize a lot of this great work that uh, my predecessor Michelle Martin, uh, who's still with IWBI and uh, was the was the sound concept lead before me, uh, pieced together in this what we formally called a wellography. It, it ages quite well, I must say, reading back at what we were putting forward here with some pretty key fundamentals that still undergird a lot of what we put into the well sound concept. Um, I, I'm happy to walk through some of the initial points for sure. I mean, the first section is really talking about the auditory limitations and physical nature of listening, uh, specifically with decibel levels and frequency response, which for human response, we're really operating at a range between zero decibels, uh, being ultra quiet, not necessarily something that you can regularly perceive, all the way up to 130 decibels when we're thinking about the threshold of pain and how the actual physical sound pressure um, can have an adverse effect on your uh, auditory response, and that can be felt physically. 
But uh, in between, there's this subjective element of how sound affects us at the auditory level, which we can study uh, using sound level, but also sound frequency. And when we think about frequency response at the auditory level, we're talking about 20 hertz, those low, bassy, rumbly, mostly felt sounds, all the way up through 20,000 hertz, and sometimes even above when we think about the ultrasonic range, which can be also felt and perceived uh, in different ways other than strictly audible uh, sound like our voice, which sits very comfortably in a mid-range frequency um, between 100 hertz and 4,000 hertz. So under bullet one in the wellographies, we actually have this illustration that showcases different types of sound uh, across these, this XY coordinate of sound pressure level in dB SPL and frequency, which is in hertz. And it looks like this amorphous blob because the way that we hear sound at different frequencies changes. And this was demonstrated in an experimental body of research, um, which came to be known as the Fletcher-Munson curves, which illustrated that in the difference between low frequencies, mid frequencies, and high frequencies are perceived differently across the auditory spectrum in the way that we hear information. And that matters a lot when we talk about things like introduced sound, um, soundscapes, the way that we subjectively enjoy or disapprove of certain sounds because we are registering bassy, rumbly sounds versus hissy, high-frequency sounds uh, quite differently than we do, say, speech, which um, our ears are um, cleverly designed to really pick up and discern and make uh, better use of that particular sonic information. Well, you talked eloquently there about the introduction of sound, which brings you on to point three of the wellography that you wrote back in 2017. Ethan wrote, sometimes adding sound to a space can increase comfort. The idea of introducing sound to a space to improve comfort may sound counterintuitive, but it is a technique used throughout the industry. Sound masking is most commonly found in office environments as a way of masking speech frequencies and creating a sense of privacy in an open forum. However, sound masking has recently become a feature used in residential and healthcare settings. It has even been proven that sound masking can improve the quality of sleep for ICU patients, producing an overall improvement of 42.7%. Evan, how do you relate as someone who has created Moodsonic uh, biophilic soundscapes, not sound masking, but nevertheless introducing sound into environments? That's what you do. How do you relate to that document and where does Moodsonic sit within that discussion? Well, I can certainly relate uh, to, the, to that problem and, and to what Ethan um, has, has written about and described here. Um, so, yeah, the, the way that I've um, experienced this and thought about it um, has been in working primarily with a lot of large um, commercial organizations, a lot of commercial offices, and then also in some of these other types of environments in healthcare and in schools. Um, and other indoor spaces. And I think one thing that's been understood over the years by everyone beyond the acoustic community, but including people working in, in real estate and in human resources, increasingly people concerned with well-being, is that sound is a problem. And uh, maybe taking it a step further, people have identified what, what's usually referred to as noise as a problem. Mm -hmm. Often what we're really talking about is, is speech, Sometimes it is indeed building noise or outdoor noise, but we know sound is this huge problem, tends to be the number one or number two thing that people complain about in their indoor spaces. And so I think what a lot of people then think next is, well, if noise, if sound, if, if these things are a problem, then the solution must be silence. It seems like a bit of a logical syllogism. And we've seen a lot of 
designing for silence in response to this. Let's cut down on noise levels. Let's use the sound pressure level meter fairly simplistically and a decibel as a measurement of whether a building is, is healthy or not. But it's unfortunately, it's not that simple. And as a counterpoint, I would point anyone to the now countless videos of people trying to best each other for longest time spent in silence on YouTube. Um, so, you know, people go into these anechoic chambers, the quietest places in the world, whether they're whether it's in a Microsoft facility in Redmond or Orfield Labs or, you know, some of the quietest spaces in the world. These are really uncomfortable places to be. Um, it's very difficult for people to spend long periods of time in them. I've spent some significant time in some really quiet anechoic chambers. Uh, I've gotten to the point where I'm hearing my bones, I'm hearing my heart and <laughs> blood coursing through my body. I don't think I've gotten to the point where I'm hearing thoughts and things that I hear that happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nor have I become, uh, you know, lost my my sense of spatial orientation. You know, become ill or fallen over. But but the point is, actual silence is really unhealthy for us. Um, there's more to whether a building is is healthy for people. Yes, what you know, their subjective response, do they feel that it's pleasant or not? But that the impact of the sound field on us is significant. And there's more to it than whether it's loud or whether it's quiet. One more example, maybe a more positive one, because that was sort of the shock, shocking and awful version of what sound can do. <laughs> um, often I hear, you know, it, it's it, uh, we need to design for silence again. I live uh, most of my life now in, in Austria, in the Alps, uh, what I would describe as a pretty quiet place, yeah. although not necessarily silent. Um, I'm from the California coast. Again, quiet in the sense that uh, in Santa Cruz beaches, you know, where I used to spend a lot of time, you don't have a lot of man-made noise. Uh, but you do have waves crashing with sound pressure levels that would drive most occupational health and safety professionals, you know, uh, up uh, batty. And yet, you know, never have I heard anyone complain. Never did I hear a tourist say, you know, could you just turn down the volume a little bit? Those waves are too loud. Um, so an oversimplification, but I think that's that's how I relate to this issue. Clearly, there's more to whether a sound field is is good for us, is healthy for us, is going to support uh, relaxation or, or, you know, whatever the functioning is, um, than whether it's loud or quiet. I've learned a lot since I met you about soundscaping and sound masking. It's something I'd like to uh, share with our audience because we hear terms like uh, white noise and biophilic acoustics and all sorts of stuff. Where does Mood Sonic sit within that? And what's the differences? How do you explain how, what's the USPs of Mood Sonics and its biophilic soundscapes? Yeah, so with Moodsonic, what we're about, and we tend to use the term soundscaping to describe what we do because um, soundscape is a term that has a lot of meaning. I would say generally uh, refers to what um, I hear around me at a given moment. But uh, the way we use soundscaping is to describe the process of adding sound into a space to achieve a benefit. Um, and we, as I said, we're doing this um, often in, in large commercial office spaces. We're also doing so in healthcare environments and hospitals uh, for therapeutic benefit, as well as now um, more and more in, in schools. And so th these are all very different use cases, as you can imagine. And generally speaking, the goal is to create 
a soundscape, what people are hearing around them, that's beneficial. So often we do uh, go about trying to achieve similar goals to sound masking, although not always, that's not always the case. Um, and so there, maybe just to, to briefly clarify what that means for anyone who's new to that term, what we're talking about there is the fact that speech intelligibility indoors can create some problems. So often we want to be able to hear what someone's saying, uh, but when we're, we're really exceptionally good at doing so, we're very good at picking up on other people's speech, uh, so much so that you can make out what I'm saying, even if I speak at a whisper. Um, so move into these environments where we have lots of people sharing spaces indoors or now post COVID, maybe fewer people, maybe an overall lower background noise level. But when someone speaks, you can make out every word. In offices, this causes distraction, people really struggling to focus, um, attention being driven down, cognitive performance driven down. In some environments like healthcare environments, this creates privacy concerns. If I can overhear speech, it's not private. Um, and so typically, as I understand it, sound masking is then concerned with uh, reducing speech intelligibility to improve focus, uh, cut down on distraction, and then to increase privacy. And so sometimes we can complement that um, and, and use the soundscape approach to, to do those things too. Uh, so in workspaces, often we're looking at doing that. And I'd say, generally speaking, though, we're looking at some, some bigger picture questions too. So typically within an office, we're looking to do more with the sound field than simply blanket the entire area with, with a, a sound that's designed to do one thing. Um, we know that in the offices that we work in, typically we're dealing with neurodiverse populations, just as one example. So uh, depending on the statistic you look at, you know, somewhere between 50 and 30% of the global population are probably neurodiverse, um, which means this refers to people with who may be uh, on the autism spectrum, people who have ADHD, who are highly sensitive in various ways, um, could be introverted and have a high need for focus. And we know that within that 15 to 30% of the population, upwards of 70% of them are hypersensitive to sound. So uh, we're typically designing for spaces where we have your extroverted sales leader, and then maybe at the other end of the spectrum, someone coming in to do data science and focus in the same space. They require very different uh, sonic environments, different levels of stimulation to do their best work and to feel comfortable. Um, and with the soundscape approach um, and by introducing the sounds of nature, which gives us a really broad palette to draw from, um, we can create different types of sensory experiences for these different types of people. I heard it in practice when we met in East London in the summer of last year. I'd like you to talk a bit more about the interface that is Mood Sonic because as you say it is sounds of nature and I recall I could choose woodland sounds or beach sounds. Please tell us more about how that interface works and what options are available to the user. Sure yeah so uh, and that's a really interesting topic uh, in its own right. Um, the options available to users, um, how we provide control to different users uh, particularly when you consider that often we're operating in environments where we have 20, 40, 60 people sharing one room at one soundscape. Um, so what is the role of user control for that group? But yeah, we, we draw a lot on um, biophilia and the sounds of nature. So when referring to biophilia, that's the hypothesis explaining um, why we have innately 
positive responses to certain kinds of natural stimuli. It's an oversimplification to say the sounds of nature are good, right? The sounds of nature include things like um, lions roaring or a rattlesnake or thunder. You know, it's not all good. Um, but due to our evolutionary biology, uh, there's encoding that we all share um, that communicates to us, for example, whether a space is safe uh, or not. For example, you know, I think one of the reasons that silence is so uncomfortable to people is that given thousands of years in evolution, we learned that the absence of birdsong suddenly is not a good sign. There may be a predator nearby. Um, so a biophilia informs a lot of what we do. We draw on the sounds of nature because it's a great design tool for designing for these neurodiverse populations that we always encounter and providing options that can provide therapeutic benefit. There are a lot of options there. You know, you described some of them. Um, so part of what we do with Moodsonic is we work with some of the greatest recordists in the world. We work with um, fantastic libraries of sound recordings. Our technology generates soundscapes. Uh, so in fact, they're using algorithms. So, so we're not looping or, or simply playing recordings. The soundscapes um, evolve over time. They can be responsive to user inputs, like you described. I want to go from the rainforest to the beach, to try and use your examples. Um, and they can also be made to respond to sensor information. So if we, if typically, you know, a simple use case is this space has gone from being quiet to now being very loud. Um, a more nuanced use case would be this space has gone from being loud but productive because we have babble and no one's really bothered by it. So now this space has gone to being quiet, but distracting because one person is easily overheard by the 20 people focusing um, and Moodsonic then will, will adapt and the soundscape will adapt. In addition to all of this, a key piece of the user experience of our soundscapes is uh, some temporal logic. So um, a typical soundscape designed for indoors has some temporal logic to it. So it will change over the course of a day. For example, we know um, that, uh, generally speaking, as a population, our circadian rhythms, our internal biological clock, um, is pretty badly out of sync. It's due to the fact that we spend uh, over 90% of our lives indoors. That's a pre-pandemic figure, by the way, scarily. And due to this, we're not getting natural light at the right times of day or in sufficient quantities. This impacts our sleep. Um, similarly, sound can be a cue for our internal biological clock, for our circadian rhythms at a tight geba. Um, so this is a reason, for example, that in some of our soundscaping, you won't hear a dawn chorus of birdsong at midday, um, but you'll hear it when it should occur. Um, and again, in a way that doesn't loop. Nature doesn't loop. Um, we're such incredible pattern recognizers, humans. Um, Back when I was in the large uh, corporate audio world, we did some studies looking at some larger samples of people playing bird song loops that were a week long. And we had people identifying week long uh, bird song samples. Yeah, they would say, oh, it's Thursday. It's 9.30 a.m. If I hear that seagull again, I'm going to go nuts. I mean, I, I remember it really clearly. <laughs> uh, um, so, yeah, we don't do that. We avoid that, again, by using some, some generative sound. Uh, that doesn't repeat, that always evolves, but again, according to some some temporal logic. Well, that's amazing. And I, I remember when I heard it for myself, genuinely, uh, I went and met you in East London. And I, I, um, 
I'm someone who works to ambient music. I'm a big fan of uh, someone like Brian Eno and his music for airports. Mm. And when he described ambient music that he created, uh, he always, I remember once he said, ambient music is a bit like a painting on the wall in a room. You don't sit and stare at the painting. Um, you look at it occasionally. But he said, if you took the painting off the wall in the room, something about that room would feel different. Um, you would almost sense it even if you're not sitting staring at that painting. And similarly, when I work to ambient music and I'm maybe writing a long document or putting a, a deck together or whatever it might be, I find that, um, again, I'm not absolutely listening to the music, but it carries me through because it's much better than silence, as you've been saying. Um and he also said that if you did suddenly take the needle off the record and ask someone to hum the last 12 bars of what you've been listening to, they'd be like, uh, what? I can't because his music isn't really about set pieces or melodies or anything about that. It's more about a feeling. And so as someone who loves working to ambient music and finds it really beneficial, I came to experience Mood Sonic in that East London uh, office thinking, how will, it be, how will I feel about Sounds of Nature? And you and I sat in a meeting room and had a conversation with uh, a soundscape on, and I think it was Waves. And there was never a point where I went, why am I listening to Waves when I'm trying to have a good conversation with Evan? If anything, it was almost like that ambient music. It was um, helped carry our conversation. It was our first meeting. We'd met through the Well Sound Advisory on Zoom calls, but we'd never met person to person. And honestly, Evan, I really think it helped um, trust, creativity. It helped to speak in ways where, you, you know, sometimes it takes a while to develop that fluidity of a rapport and a conversation. But that fluidity and that connection and that I, I feel safe to say this, I've got, I, I can talk to this guy and I, I can see he's going to respond. I think that that happened quicker. We got through to that stage of our dialogue quicker and I do think it happened because of the comfort of the sounds of nature which were in the room which we weren't absolutely listening to well well thanks for sharing Simon so glad that was your response I felt the same way thank you <laughs> um and and yeah we know I mean looking back to to to, to research that was done prior to Midsonic and prior to the soundscape approach I mean we knew how 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 impactful sound is on people how uh, yeah, music is extremely powerful stuff, right? Really mm. emotionally evocative, um, also highly subjective. So, you know, it's great for you at home to listen to the music that you like. Mm. But if you tried to bring that approach into an office, you know, good luck, right? I've yeah. tried playing Brian Eno in offices. It doesn't go down. <laughs> it doesn't go down very well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're doing better than me. You know, I'm a jazz musician, so like... <laughs> Aside from Ethan, you know, no one in the world probably wants to listen to what I would play, uh, right? <laughs> oh, uh, we, we, we happen to share uh, uh, some, some favorite artists. No, Ethan and I's friendship, uh, which has continued since he was on episode two of the Guamot podcast two years ago, uh, has bloomed through Spotify sharing. And uh, I, know the I, I know the weird and wonderful stuff he likes, and I'm always delighted to receive it. Let's just say that. But Ethan, when you're hearing about these uh, soundscapes and my response to them, and certainly Evans, have you had this experience yourself? Absolutely. I mean, you, you were talking about Brian Eno. I, I had the great fortune last year to work uh, in one of my many hats that I wear as a private consultant to the Lisan Gallery here in New York City, located in Chelsea. 
where uh, my collaborator, uh, Devin Turnbull, who's a, a well-known hi-fi audio uh, designer, uh, inventor, uh, just genius uh, with, with uh, hi-fi audio equipment, set out to design a listening room uh, in the back of uh, the Lisan Gallery that was open during the regular operating hours of the gallery and welcomed in uh, a record-breaking number of, of foot traffic and, and individuals interested in just sharing a listening experience with you know, a high-quality sound system. Uh, there's, there's actually a GQ article uh, featuring Devin and his work with the gallery um, that you know, if folks are interested, you can link to that. Um, but one week was devoted entirely to Brian Eno's uh, music for installations, uh, where they actually flew in uh, Brian Eno's custom uh, illuminated turntable. And the experience of listening to that piece in full and then seeing the way that people, total strangers who ended up listening in that room together, just felt comfortable sharing thoughts of what did I hear and how did that make me feel was beyond expectations when we set out to design this listening room. So it's that's a, that's a high uh, specific, you know, a specific scenario of that type of intentional listening environment with ambient music as a as a focus, but it it goes to illustrate that the introduction of sound in a meaningful capacity can elicit responses that um, we can't even quite uh, conceive of from the engineering or the uh, predictive uh, lens that we usually take acoustical design. I love what you're saying there, and Evan, you know, you're absolutely right because yeah, I work well to Brian Eno and Ethan talks of a room there where people have collected together to listen to what Brian Eno and it's a lovely collective experience but I'm not joking when I say that uh, I did work in an open plan office I did try to introduce Brian Eno and I did get people going what on earth so what is it about sounds of nature which doesn't make people do that well fundamentally they it, it cuts down on that sub subjectivity and the subjective response because we can you know there's no universally good uh, well, just about anything probably, but there's certainly no universally good soundscape, right? We have to take into account the variation that we experience um, within the population. But yeah, generally speaking, I'd say one of the key differences is um, that we typically in an office space, we're not designing for an active listening experience, right? We don't, we're not trying to get people to come in and listen. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. We do listening sessions. We like to encourage people to understand what's happening in the soundscape. And again, a certain segment of the population is really going to go for that. And they want to understand the complexity of what we do. They're delighted by, um, you know, a humpback whale that might uh, occur. Humpback, you know, we have some humpback whale song in, um, in a particular soundscape theme based on a, an Australian island. Um, it occurs very infrequently, right? Only at times of day when we know we're not going to distract people. And yeah, we know that some people really respond positively to that. But generally speaking, one of the things we're doing in designing soundscapes for, for the open plan for, for workspaces is we're thinking a lot about um, attention. And I think uh, there's actually a, a great book that I, I was very influential at the time. I think now deserves even a second read. Um, by, by Cal Newport from Georgetown University. The book's called Deep Work. I mean, he has a new book coming out as well. But the, um, at the time, the book was really analyzing focus um, and, and how people uh, can do creative work, can do productive work, um, and the role that attention plays in that and how our attention just globally is really 
you know, been under assault for a while. And I, I, I think now the reason I say it's, it's worth maybe a second read is that coming through um, COVID, uh, many organizations now are focused on hybrid and embracing increasingly collaborative spaces. And the notion that the workspace is now about getting people together to collaborate. I mean, it is in a big way. But we also know that still at some point uh, throughout the day, people in workspaces, the, the workspaces that are doing a good job of, of making environments for people to come in, that people in those workspaces are still trying to do some work throughout the day. And people are trying to do some focused work and that our attention is really um, still under assault. Um, so we're trying to promote attention. Um, ultimately, these, these soundscapes should sit in the background. Um, in certain cases, as we discussed, they may be um, providing masking effect, cutting down on distraction. Um, they may be uplifting, uh, contributing a bit of stimulation for people who might need that. But at the end of the day, they really should be sitting in the background, not calling too much attention um, to themselves and, and providing a, a general uplift. global audience and we know that um, with what you're doing it's not a one-size-fits-all solution so my question to you is knowing that you've recently done uh, SAP's offices in Japan looking out to Mount Fuji uh, I don't imagine they're asking for the same mood sonic solution that someone in a New York office is how does that work yeah, yeah, that's yeah. This was a fantastic project and um, and a, and a great growth opportunity for us because we hadn't we hadn't done that particular geography yet. Um, and yeah, sometimes there's a need for us to 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 create something that's entirely new. So so let me start by saying oh, the way Moodsonic works, we have a large catalog of different types of soundscape themes, so that any client of ours, wherever they are, can immediately and pretty simply start using soundscaping with different types of content for different zones, for different types of activities, whether it's focus or collaboration, for different types of people with sensory needs. But yeah, then every now and then we've got a project like this. Um, <laughs> you know, got one um, going up right now in, in India, which is which has a very strong visual design based on, on Indian nature, um, where it has such a clear um, intent that, that dictates that we do something specific with the soundscape. And yeah, this SAP office in Tokyo is another great example. Probably one of the best examples of multi-sensory design that I've experienced, where they did um, a fantastic job uh, of, of accounting for all senses. And so you walk into the building um, and they're, even, they're using scent. I often find that to be a bit invasive, frankly, and I, I tend to feel for the receptionist who has to smell, you know, the cinnamon at, at Christmas time or whatever it is. But they are doing a fantastic job. You walk in. And you, you, it's in central Tokyo, but you walk into their office and immediately you sort of feel like you're in a forest. Um, there's a really subtle scent of, of a forest, of a Japanese forest, not sort of the, the pine salt scent that, uh, you know, I've experienced in the U.S. And then you look out windows and you can see the Imperial Palace Gardens. And the soundscape for that space really just had to support all of this. 
So ultimately, we ended up working with a Japanese recordist and sound artist. Working in conjunction with our client, we, we developed some soundscape theming, ultimately composing it into、uh, you know, a generative soundscape algorithms that take you through this welcoming space in the office where it's a welcoming space is one of those few areas too where we, we can sometimes introduce some musical elements. So we have, I'd, I'd even say,、uh, Hopefully, it's Brian Eno in spirit,、um, in this case, using traditional Japanese instrumentation, but in a very ambient way that welcomes you into the space. And then, as you transition into the office space, into the cafe, into the collaborative areas, there are various sub themes all based on Japanese nature. So, yeah, that's, that's a great、uh, illustration of how sometimes a particular region, geography, even culture、um, can dictate our approach to soundscape. Yeah, adding on to that, it's the culture of listening in Japan has played a huge role in some of the conversations I've had as a consultant with many of the projects that I've worked on, in addition to this gallery space I mentioned before, where there is this world, this it's sort of underground world that emerged, I'd say, probably in the middle of the 20th century, where music listening really took hold around the country in izakayas or the comfortable spot to go grab a drink or food、uh, in your town or in your city in these. Environments were called、uh, jazz kisa, where you would go, you would grab a coffee or a beer or whatever it may be, and listen to a collector or a few collectors'、um, entire catalog and library of, of rare to find jazz vinyl or classical. And these environments are、uh, historically not well acoustically treated. These are not high level recording、uh, studio spaces, but what they are are a place to, to gather and appreciate. Sound and the the art that is music making in in a shared environment. There's a really great collection of magazines、um, by this photographer and I guess somewhat historian,、uh, Katsumasa、uh, Kusanose, I believe is his last name, called Jazz Kisa. And they're a really wonderful、uh, just glimpse into how design merges with that type of just listening for enjoyment in a public environment. Well, Simon, you mentioned earlier about white noise and you know, looking back, if we take a second back to those, that wellography link that I, I put together in 2017, which feels like a lifetime ago. It is really important to think about where we've come from with introduced sound in the open office environment, for instance, and see where we can take it. So, you, you say white noise, and in my industry, we've known that that type of sound signal. Is entirely ineffective. And、uh, we've known this since the 70s and 80s when that technology was employed in some of the earlier open office environments with, with pretty mixed results. And that white noise signal was determined to be a very annoying sound when、uh, occupants were surveyed after its deployment and use over a long period of time. So, that spectrum itself has been adjusted、uh, with the help of some organizations like the National Research Council of Canada, which has looked into what is an optimal introduced sound level for these purposes of masking, which Evan so eloquently described earlier in supporting focus and reducing distraction, increasing privacy. So, when we talk about sound masking, we're really, as acoustical consultants, talking about pink noise, which is an adjusted spectrum, which focuses on increased low frequency, a bit of a warmth of a sound. With some reduced high end frequencies that might be a bit shrill. 
So it's an adjustable contoured spectrum, which has a very specific purpose uh, in the open office environment as discussed before. But when we think about soundscape systems and moving on from that 2017 wellography and how we're really thinking about soundscape in well and in other programs is focusing on respite and stimulation and harnessing that connection with nature that Evan has described with how MoodSonic has, has been developed and is currently being deployed. And when we take that into the conversation and in, in emerging conversations with neurodiversity, I, I really want to take the moment to dispel a myth where we think about neurodiverse design from the acoustic lens as simply noise control, reducing sound, focusing on con controlling stimuli such that acoustics and the introduction of sound doesn't pose a potential risk or harm for productivity in those who fall on the neurodiverse spectrum. When we know to that very point that neurodiversity is a wide-ranging spectrum, that type of stimulation is required for, say, for lack of a better term, the more extroverted individuals or those who generally need that type of sonic stimuli. I think back in 2017, it wasn't made that clear, at least to me, that that type of intervention could really support this growing demographic that the design community is now uh, you know, directing its light towards. And I think that it's it's going to be really important for those to consider uh, soundscaping to be a vital uh, and, and almost even requisite can, component of acoustical design from the universal design perspective. Ethan, Evan, thank you so much for taking the time today in your busy schedules to talk to us about um, soundscaping. It's been a fascinating conversation and uh, a pleasure talking to you both about it. Thank you very much for your time. Ethan, Simon, thank you both so much. It was a real pleasure. Simon, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. See you again soon.